Hi, I'm Roger Blackmore. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis Church on Long Island in New York. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you want to learn a bit more about our church, then check out our website, genesisli.com. And of course, if you live within traveling distance of us, we'd love to see you in person on Sunday morning, worshiping with us. So here's today's message. Enjoy. Amen. So, uh, this morning I'm starting a teaching series running through the month of July, which um, is entitled, My Journey. And because for me, the month of July is very significant. July the 26th in 1970 was my first service I conducted as a pastor. So, that means that three weeks from now will actually mark 50 years that I've been pastoring. Now, I know I don't look old enough, right? I totally got that. I started very, very young. I came straight out of kindergarten and started being a pastor. Um, but, but you know what? What I want to do is uh, I'm celebrating this month, and I make no pretense of that. I'm celebrating this month because, number one, God is faithful. God has been with me, and God has kept me, and, and, and God still sees fit to use me. I'm celebrating this month because there are a lot of people who drop out of ministry a few years into it. And I'm celebrating this month because I still love doing what I'm doing. I'm still pumped about pastoring, and I'm good for the next 50. So I, I want to share some things that I've actually gleaned from those 50 years of pastoring. It'll only take four sermons because I haven't learned a lot. I'm slow. Um, but I want to take these four Sundays to share some of those things with you. I came out of Bible school and... Uh, the pattern then, I was with the Assemblies of God, was very simple. The Bible school was really a small seminary preparing people for ministry. And churches within that denomination that were, might have been looking for a pastor would often contact the Bible school and would say to the principal, do you have any students graduating this summer that you could recommend to us? And uh, my principal had got some notification from a church in the northeast of England, a little place called Bertley, and uh, they were asking for a pastor. And one day, not knowing what was happening, I got a call to the principal's office, which had happened before, um, and I went to his office wondering what I'd done now, and he said, Roger, I've got this letter here. This church needs a pastor. I think you would be a good fit. And uh, that's where I started my ministry, this uh, church building you'll see there, this tiny little church that um, had been a really big church years before and basically was dying, and that's where I started pastoring. I pastored that church for two years, which was, it was kind of the protocol in that denomination at that time, that your first church you just pastored for a short period. I guess you made all your mess-ups the first two years. After that, you moved on and got it all right. Uh, and then, uh, when I'd been there for two years, I was approached by uh, a church uh, a little further south in Yorkshire, England, uh, a place with a charming name called Swallow Nest. And Swallow Nest was on the outskirts of the city of Sheffield. And I, I moved to Swallow Nest in 1972. And this is the building from Swallow Nest now that you'll see. And uh, I pastored Bethesda Church in Swallow Nest for four years. I want to talk about those first six years of my ministry this morning, 
And I want to share with you some of the major lessons that I learned through those six years. I came fresh out of Bible college, really feeling this is what God wanted me to do, gung-ho, ready to go, surprised that a megachurch had not invited me to be its pastor, uh, but ready now to turn this tiny church upside down and make it better than it had ever been before. Which reminds me of a part of the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. And it says this in Exodus 2 and verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Then it says this further down in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses had grown up in Pharaoh's court as part of the family of the ruler. And now all of a sudden, through these events where he saw someone mistreating someone of his own race and actually killed him. Now he was driven from Pharaoh's palace and he went into the middle of nowhere. And eventually the Bible tells us he became a shepherd. And he was there, in a shepherd in the middle of nowhere for 40 years. In fact, the life of Moses breaks down into three segments of 40 years. He spent 40 years with Pharaoh. He spent 40 years in the desert caring for sheep. He spent 40 years leading the children of Israel to the promised land. Or to put it another way, he spent 40 years thinking he was everything. He spent 40 years learning he was nothing. And he spent 40 years finding God was all he needed. And that kind of, in a different time frame, really does apply to where I was at. You see, it's a long journey for some of us from I got this to I don't got this. And it's a frightening place for many of us to be in where we have to recognize the fact that we can't do what we thought we were really going to excel at doing. And in those early years of my ministry, I discovered I wasn't the rock star I thought I was. I was not the legend that I'd been built up to think that I was. And one of the first issues that I've had to deal with on my journey, and constantly and still do, is dealing with self-doubt. Dealing with self-doubt. Because self-doubt and self-blame become a part of the road when we're realizing, I really don't have this. Why not? See, I was ready to take on the world when I left Bible school. In the small church that I'd spent my uh, teenage years in, I guess I was built up because I started preaching when I was young, and I was kind of the, you know, I was kind of the superstar in the small church. I was the big fish in the small pond. 
And so I go to Bible school. I have a good time in Bible school. I do pretty well in Bible school. And then I come out and I think, here I am, ready for the world. I was one month after my 20th birthday, exactly the day that I started pastoring. So here I was. But things didn't turn out the way I'd expected. I, I want to tell you this. I, 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 there was one thing that was my passion from the time I was a teenager till standing here this Sunday morning. All my life, I've wanted to lead people to Jesus. That's all I want to do. That's my primary purpose standing here this Sunday morning. My passion was to lead people to Jesus. And so I go to this small church in Berkeley and this tiny congregation, 35, was we topped out at 35 one Sunday. I still remember it. It was revival. So we had 35 people there. And it was absolutely, you know, it was, but it, it, was a, it was this tiny church. God bless them. Most of them were very elderly people. And I'd gone there believing God would help me to turn things around. I'd see people in that town came to, come to Jesus and and nothing much really happened. Nothing much. I did the services. I preached my heart out. Nothing much really happened. I spent a lot of time visiting the old ladies and drinking tea with them. And God bless them. And that may be part of what pastors were meant to do back then. But I hated it. Because I didn't sign up to drink tea with old ladies. <laughs> I signed up to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. But that didn't happen. Church didn't really grow. A couple of teenagers came to trust Christ. Thank God. I don't know where they are now, but hopefully that was something that stuck. But nothing major happened. And when the invitation came to go to pastor another church, um, I weighed the whole thing up and I felt, yeah, that would be a good thing. This would be a better fit for me. We, we moved to Swallow Nest in, in, in Yorkshire, and um, I followed on from a, a, a pastor who was retiring, and he'd been a pastor for years, and now the idea was they wanted a young guy in because a young guy would re-energize the place. I was 22 years old, and so here I come, and I move into the situation. And I remember just a, about 15 months after I'd gone there, it was New Year's Eve, and we had a... Um, you know, we had a potluck because churches do those, right? So we had a potluck on New Year's Eve uh, late in the evening. And then we, we, we had some worship and we did a service and we were going to see the new year in together. And before kind of 12 o'clock, I said, hey, let's just share together. Anybody want to share something about what God's done for them this year? What's been special for them this year? And one of the guys who'd been in that church since it started and was one of the people who kind of called the tune, um, he got up and I waited to hear what he said. He said, well, this has probably been the most disappointing year of my life. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know what had happened to him that was disappointing. He said, when the old pastor retired and a young pastor came, I thought this church would turn around, but it hasn't. Nothing's really changed. And it hasn't grown, and I'm pretty disappointed because we thought he was the right guy. I went home that night feeling fantastic. <laughs> no, you know what? I went home that night dealing with all kinds of self-doubt, 
and self-blame. Now, I know today that those churches weren't structured for growth. They were dying churches. Probably the best thing to do was give them a good Christian burial and close the doors. But I didn't realize that at the time. At the time, I felt it was all on me because I wasn't capable. I didn't realize they were so disconnected from real life. They were just a private little ring of people who did Christian things together several times a week. But I didn't know it, and I took it all on myself. Those first years were not easy at all. It's kind of like the song the band sang uh, this morning that asked the question, have you come to the end of yourself? Of course, the next part was Jesus is calling. Those first few years, I came close to the end of myself. But it's not all about me. I want us to take that this morning, and I want you to hear what I'm going to say now. When you come to the end of yourself, at the end of your rope is where life begins. At the end of your rope. What do you do when your dreams fade? Where can you turn when nothing goes the way you had anticipated? What do you do when you look around you and say, I haven't got this, I can't really do this? Whether it's parenting, whether it's just adulting, whether it's as a student getting through the work you need to get through, in whatever area of life that might be relevant for you today. I just want to remind you that when you come to the end of yourself, stop looking inward to blame yourself and start looking upward for the God who is longing to hear from you. It was a Friday afternoon. I was pastoring the church in Swallow Nest. It was a rainy Friday afternoon. I was walking in the neighboring village of Alton. Don't ask me why I remember that. Don't tell my wife I remember. Oh, she's watching. I remember that. Because she'll say, why didn't you remember to bring milk when I asked you today? So I can look back now, you know, 46, 47 years and remember this rainy Friday afternoon and I'm out and I'm walking and I'm saying to myself, I'm going to give this six more months. And if nothing changes in six months, I'm done. And there were tears rolling down my face because I just couldn't understand it. This was what I thought God wanted me to do, but I couldn't do it. And it just wasn't working. And while I'm walking along that rainy afternoon, the words of Jesus in John 15 came to my mind. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I was reminded that afternoon that my job wasn't the doing, my, my job was the remaining. If you remain in me, what I needed to do was just stay connected to Jesus for myself, for my sake, for my sanity, for my spiritual growth. I needed to stay connected to him. It wasn't all about showing the world what Roger Blackmore could do. It was a case of me staying close to Jesus and seeing what Jesus might be able to do. Dealing with self-doubt. 
I can't do this. God never intended for any of us to do this life by ourselves. You might be watching this Sunday morning, and you're in a position just now where you think, I can't cope with another single thing. I can't deal with another thing that's going to be going against me. And what I want to remind you of today is this. God never intended you to deal with any of the challenges and and, and any of the hurdles of life all by yourself. God intended us to live remaining in him. He's the vine, we're the branches. Connected to Jesus is how he wants us to be. Jesus said, look, at the end of that verse, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. 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 So you work out what it seems like you're really not managing to get done, or maybe you're failing at this Sunday morning, and and take a look at that right now and realize, you know, you can't do that apart from Jesus. Apart from me, you can't do anything. (laughs) But here's what the Bible also tells us, with God, nothing will be impossible. God wants us to get to the end of ourselves, because at the end of ourselves, is where he gets the opportunity to take over. Those early years were years of dealing with self-doubt. Apparently very little happening that I'd expected to happen. But learning that my connection with Jesus was the most valuable thing that I needed to pursue. I've got a video clip from a guy that uh, I'll play next Sunday who was a teenager in that first church and uh, actually went on from there to become one of the major church leaders in the UK and ministered worldwide. And uh, we're going to play that next. But I didn't see that at the time. But Ken Gott was actually with us for our anniversary dinner uh, the year before last. And Ken graciously said that he, I mean, he came, he asked if he could come. And he said, uh, I just wanted to be able to thank you face to face for your input into my life. Sometimes we see nothing happening, but significant. And I got an email from him this morning, by the way. He's saying, your leadership is about influence. So I want you to know, I just bought my first pair of Converse. (laughs) I have joined Weight Watchers. And I guess all I need now is a bright shirt. Dealing with self-doubt is an important thing for all of us. Listen, listen, don't take it all on yourself when you can't make it. God knows you can't make it. God knows none of us can make it by ourselves. He didn't make us so we make it by ourselves. He make it, let's try to get this right. He made us so that we can only make it with him alongside of us. And with God with us, we become invincible. I had to deal with self-doubt. The, the second thing I learned in those early years is I learned living on the edge. Now, when, you, when you're pastoring small churches, they don't pay big money. So actually, we had just started married life together, really, when I started pastoring. Jill and I had got married in the December of 69. I went back to Bible school, finished my last semester, um, and then we went to start married life together proper, really, and to start ministry in the summer of 1970. And we weren't making much money at all. 
I'd, I'd read a lot of biographies as a teenager. I love reading people's life stories and learning from them. And, and, and I love reading the, the, the stories of supernatural provision, of how people were in desperate situations and God provided, how, how miracles happened so that God took care of people. I loved reading the books, but it scared the life out of me to live that way. It's like, yay you, Hudson Taylor, great missionary. You go do it, man. It's like, God, I could do it a few more dollars. It was a tough one. Because the thing is this, if you want to see a miracle in your life, you've got to need a miracle. That was profound, wasn't it? But it's true. You don't see a miracle unless you need a miracle. You don't see God's provision unless, you know, all your resources have dried up. And then God comes through for you. Before I went to Bible school the year before, I think we got a picture of this. That we, I was preaching in the city of Cardiff in Wales. And uh, that summer, the summer of 1967, I was 17 years old. There were three of us who went to help this small church in Cardiff, Wales. And as we were there, um, we did some special services for the church. And I was preaching one night. And I, I remember very distinctly the... the um, the sermon I was preaching in this picture. Now, please don't tell my wife. Oh, she's watching still. But, okay, I remember what I was preaching in August of 1967. I preached about Elijah during the time of the drought when God provided for him supernaturally. 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verse 3. Um, God said to Elijah, he said, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So, hey, Elijah, you've, you know, you've told the king there's going to be no rain, there's going to be drought in the land, but don't you worry, I'm going to take care of you. And God tells him to go to a place where there's a brook that will give him water, and miraculously ravens who are scavengers themselves are going to drop food off to him on a regular basis. God took care of him. And God does. Sometimes we sing those words, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I'll sing of the goodness of God. God provided. But, Here's what it says in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So it's like, hey, God said, hey, go here. You'll be taken care of. And then suddenly, hey, God, I'm here. What, what now? I'm going to die. Did you ever do that? Like you've seen God provide for you in the past, but now when you're in a position where you need his help, it's like, I'm going to die. And, and God says to Elijah, verse 8, it says, then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow woman there to supply you with food. Now, God says, go to this place. He knew nobody there. And all he had really was God said, I fixed up for a widow to take care of you. Now, in those days, if you were a widow, you, you probably had very, very little indeed. Go to this place where you don't know anybody and there's a woman who's got nothing, and she'll take care of you. Yeah. You know, faith always runs counter to logic. 
Elijah went. Because the thing is this, when we are where God wants us to be, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. I could tell you story after story after story spanning 50 years of supernatural provision. We saw more of it in those early years when we were kind of really desperate for cash. We lived in this small church parsonage in in Berkeley, and living in the parsonage there, it was a very simple, small house. Now, this sounds outrageous in the 21st century, but we didn't have a refrigerator. Uh, We went to the store a lot. So... We didn't even have a refrigerator. And every now and again, I would go out of our front door, and on the door handle, there'd be a bag with all kinds of butcher's meats, steaks, pork chops, sausages. I mean, real sausages, English sausages. No disrespect to my Italian friends, but real sausage, English sausage. All kinds of good meat. And, 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 and that happened so many times. And you know what? <laughs> we didn't have a freezer to put it in. <laughs> we didn't have a fridge. So you know what we did? We ate. I'm sorry, you vegetarians. You're going to get really upset with me now. We ate meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we ate like a king and a queen, like for a couple of days. It was fantastic. Because when God provides, he does good, right? God doesn't skim, folks. So we would, you know, and that happened over and over and over again. We had our first child, Charlotte, while we were living there. I remember when she came to the stage where she started eating kind of, you know, solid-ish foods. Um, there was, we didn't know who it was. We worked out who it was, but it was anonymous. Every week, there'd be a bag on our front door of jars of baby food and enough for the whole of the week of jars of baby food. Because where God guides, God provides. Now, you may say, well, that's great for you, Roger. No, no, no. It was great for me, but it's great for you too. And you need to realize this Sunday morning that God is no respecter of persons. God don't play favorites. So the bottom line is this. The God who's provided for us and the God who supplied for us is the God who will provide for you and is the God who will supply what you need as well. The Bible's promise is this. But my God will supply all your need from his riches in glory. I'm not telling you the stories of my life today so you think, whoa, he's had a charmed existence. I'm telling you this today because these are God events and these are Bible principles and they absolutely work. Elijah said to this widow, he said, uh, he said, hey, can you do me a favor? Get me a glass of water and give me some bread. And she said, really? She said, I'm really sorry about this, but um, there's me and my son We've got a tiny bit of oil, a tiny bit of flour. I'm actually out here picking up sticks to make a little fire to cook some bread, and then we'll eat that and we'll be dead. And Elijah said to her, if you feed me first, you'll be okay. And you know the amazing thing about this story? She believed him. And she did. And here's what the Bible says. That right through the time of that drought, that there was always flour and there was always oil. 
And day after day and meal after meal, as she sustained the prophet, as she looked after herself and her son, every day there was enough oil and every day there was enough flour. Now, I want you to notice here that, that Uncle Giuseppe's did not turn up at her doorstep with, with a whole consignment of, uh, of extra virgin olive oil and say, this should take you right through the drought. That didn't happen. It was just... Every mealtime, miraculously, there was enough there for that mealtime. Enough for that mealtime. It's kind of like in the, in, in, earlier in the Old Testament when God fed the children of Israel as they were traveling through the desert. And what happened there was that every day they found there was food on the ground that was supernaturally provided for them to eat. Give us this day our daily bread. If you're waiting for the windfall when you win the lottery, stop that nonsense. Start asking God, listening to God, and looking to God. And He comes through, often in the most unexpected ways. We were very anxious one day. We'd, we'd, we'd had letters from the electric company saying that we were delinquent in paying the bill, and we didn't have the money to pay it. Uh, you, can't make, you can't do a lot with $15 a week. That was what we made. Now, I know that was when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but it still was, trust me, it still wasn't much in 1970. Um, and then one day, I went to get the mail. There were two letters. The one was the final notice that the electric company were going to disconnect our electricity. The other letter was quite fascinating. No idea who it was from, but it was a check, for, it was a money order rather, for the exact amount in this hand that we were delinquent with the electric bill in this hand. The exact amount in the mail on the same day. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Learning to live on the edge we don't like the edge, but the edge is where God comes through. The edge is where God meets us. The edge is where great things happen. Psalm 34 and verse 9 says this. It says, fear the Lord, you his holy people, for there is no, those who fear him lack nothing. Those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 84 and verse 11 tells us this. It says, the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Living on the edge was something we learned, especially in the early years. And it's kind of been my pattern and sometimes my choice as the years have gone by. Let's not play safe. The purpose of life is not to die unharmed. The purpose of life is to live to the full what God intended us to live. Live on the edge. And then the third thing I'll share briefly just now is this, that I learned in those early years was I learned the importance of leaning on others. Leaning on others. You know what you got to do when you realize, I don't got this? You start to lean on others. Sure, we're meant to put on this bravado of I got everything, Right? Here I am, fresh out of Bible school, big Bible. I got this. I'm a pastor now. 
then you come to the place where you realize, I haven't got this. And what do you do now? You lean on others. I've been so grateful to God for the people that I've been able to lean on over the years. Hey, there was a young couple, you know, a little older than us that were pastoring a church near us in Berkeley, Les and Val Thomas. There's a pretty good chance they're watching this today. They're very old now, of course. Bless you, Les. <laughs> so, they were so kind to us and so good to us. They'd invite us over and we could identify with them as a young couple and they'd be asking us how we're doing and giving us advice and giving us encouragement. And they were such a blessing to us. Another pastor by the name of George Stout is with Jesus now. Old George was a fantastic guy. Scotsman. Pastored a church about five miles away. And George was such a kind of fatherly, caring figure. And, and what I learned very soon on was this. If you recognize and own up to the fact you haven't got this, there are plenty of people who are willing to support and encourage and help you. In the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, it says there in Acts chapter 13 uh, and verse 2, it says, one day as the leaders of the early church were worshiping God, they were fasting, they waited for guidance. The Holy Spirit said, take Barnabas and Saul and commission them for the work I have called them to do. Take Barnabas and Saul, who changed his name to Paul, of course. It was always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. Paul and Timothy. Listen, God never intended us to do life by ourselves. That's one of the reasons we have church and do church. God gave us to one another. God gave us to one another. And I'm looking around this pretty empty worship center this morning, but there are some wonderful people who are standing and sitting right in front of me now. And I tell you this, the last four months wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't been able to lean on them. And we're doing this together. God didn't intend us to do life by ourselves. If you are not committed to church family, I want to encourage you to get committed. If you're kind of a casual observer of Genesis services, I want to encourage you this morning, why don't you just take the next step of saying, you know what? I want to identify Genesis as my church. And you can do that. You go to our website, genesisli.com, and you hit the connect button. But get connected because we need each other. There's a whole bunch of things that I've learned in 50 years of pastoring. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this. When it comes to leaning on others, I want to really make one thing clear. Uh, there is one person who I've leaned on more than any other, and this celebration is hers as much as mine. My wonderful wife has been with me every step of this journey. When we've been struggling financially, struggling emotionally. She's done probably every single thing that would ever need doing in a church, but above all, committed her heart to people as a caring, 
loving person. She never kind of really wanted the spotlight or the stage. But actually, long before our daughter was preaching, she was preaching. But it's not her ideal comfort zone. But I want to say this this Sunday morning. I am grateful to God for my wife, Jill, and for the fact that not only have we enjoyed 50 years of marriage together, but we have enjoyed 50 years of ministry, us together. Lean on others. We need each other. The first thing that I had to get to grips with, and it took years, was to learn my limitations. But my limitations are not a sign of weakness. My limitations open the door to God, and yours do too. Let's pray together.